Welcome to season four of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and our guest today is Dr. Karen Wingfield, Executive Director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance and co-host of the Three Black Docs Podcast. Dr. Wingfield, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Karen, you know that one of my favorite things for our podcast guest is learning about the journey. So we learned that your path to becoming a physician wasn't exactly as direct as most. Um, you faced your own personal and, and social barriers as a young adult, which we thought was so interesting and so many people go through. So in high school, you know, it took the initiative of one of your teachers who recognized your potential and wasn't willing to let you slip. You know, you started to slip just a little bit. So could you tell us mm -hmm. about that journey for you and, you know, what led you to become a physician eventually? Yeah, sure. You know, what's interesting is I think um, there's a lot of value to actually doing things not in a linear pathway. Mm -hmm. And particularly in medicine, I think it gives you a lot of different exposures. Uh, but there are some folks who literally for their entire life, since they were six years old or in sixth grade or whatever, have always wanted to be a physician. And that certainly was not um, something that I had ever considered. In fact, I actually wanted to be a performer. Uh, that was always what I wanted to do. I enjoyed singing and, and acting and playing instruments, et cetera. But, you know, one of the things for me, I was the youngest uh, child in my family. And when I was five years old, my parents um, changed their religion. And part of what became the norm was this uh, concept of not going to college after you finished school, which was odd because I was in a very, um, an excellent uh, grade school, et cetera. I'd always been in all advanced classes. I had been, you know, AP coursework in high school. I, I just, that was for me, academics was it. Hmm. And when I looked around and all of my my high school colleagues are preparing to take the SATs, et cetera, and I wasn't and wasn't thinking about going to college, that was a challenge. And I think emotionally, I was like, why am I trying so hard? Because I was on track mm -hmm. to be valedictorian. It's like, you know, and I was like, well, why am I trying so hard when I'm not going to go to college afterwards? And I started cutting class and, and acting out a little bit. Had a teacher, Ms. Miller, who said, what are you doing? She found me cutting her class. <laughs> I was sitting in the, in, in the cafeteria with my girls. I was like, whoops, you know? Um, and she was just like, what are you doing? And I, I shared with her, I was like, why? I'm not going to college. She's like, what? And so she took time to sit down, hear my story. She was like, look, you have to go to school. This is something you really want. Let's see what we can do. And she actually helped, took me to the guidance counselor's office and they worked around kind of the system, was able to get me declared independent so that I could apply to college and, and went on to, to school. And, you know, I, I, I tell you, I, I could not have done it without those individuals supporting me, um, all of those people from my high school, Half Hollow Hills um, on Long Island in New York, um, just were incredible people. And I think it it's a testament to the fact that we can impact people in ways that we might not ever realize. Absolutely. Mm. Just by, you know, just by being there, just by being present. And she wasn't doing anything special for me. I'm sure that she didn't do for any other individual, but it changed the direction of my life. And I tell you, even though I went to school, I started out as a music major. I studied music and, and classical voice uh, for two years. Um, I struggled a little bit emotionally just being separated from my family. Again, I was the youngest kid and I was by myself because one of the things that came out of that whole uh, experience was um, essentially being ostracized from my family. And it's, you know, that's not, again, there are lots of kids, unfortunately, uh, particularly those from underserved backgrounds who sometimes face that decision. Sometimes there's the parents will say, well, if you do X, then, you know, don't bother coming home. Right. Mm. If, if you say that you're gay, don't bother coming home. Yeah. 
if if you decide that you're going to take that job, don't bother coming home. And, and it's it's a struggle. Um, but I tell you, I'm grateful for those people who are around me who who allowed me to rise above that and to point me in a direction. Because when I went to school, studied music, I struggled emotionally, took a little bit of time off, went back after four years. So I didn't finish college right away, y'all. It took me nine years to finish my undergraduate degree. Wow. But when I went back to school, um, I went back as a biochemistry major. Uh, ripped that degree out in three years and decided then that I really wanted to understand human physiology and to to cure human diseases. And that's one of the reasons why I went to medical school. It wasn't to be a physician because that wasn't something I had ever, I'd never seen a black physician. I'd actually never seen a black scientist before. And so for me, um, it was just something that was innate. I wanted to do something that was going to help people. I thought that science was the way to do it. I was a Howard Hughes scholar, um, fellow, undergraduate fellow when I was in uh, at Binghamton University and really enjoyed science and said this was, that was the direction for me. It's incredible. So you eventually matriculate into being a radiation oncologist and mm-hmm. now as the executive director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance. Now, a lot of our listeners may readily recognize Vanderbilt University, mm-hmm. um, but they may not recognize the name Meharry Medical College, which is historically black medical school. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the work that you're doing at the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance? Yeah, you know, um, I'm so glad you uh, highlighted the fact that Meharry is actually one of four historically black institutions that have medical schools associated with them. There used to be a lot more. Um, It's really important for folks to understand the history of black physicians. And, you know, it it actually harkens back to just the relationship between races in this country. And I think that's an important thing for us to to really understand that background. Blacks were not allowed to to get educated in this country for a long time. Uh, They oftentimes would have to go elsewhere. And they certainly were not allowed to go to medical schools. And so there were black medical schools that popped up all around the country that they were segregated, but at least it allowed for blacks to become educated. There were quite a few until the Flexner Report came out in the late 1800s that essentially changed what it meant to be a doctor in this country and how physicians uh, training was going to go. And so all of the schools closed except two. And that was Meharry. Medical College, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, and Howard University in Washington, D.C. Those are the only two black institutions, black medical schools that actually survived. Now we've got four. Um, But it's really important to understand that there is culture associated with different communities. (laughs) It shouldn't be rocket science, right? You think about New York City, like I grew up in New York, right? And there were all these neighborhoods. And a lot of times the neighborhoods, oftentimes, particularly in the city, were based on culture and traditions, right? You would have your barrios or you would have your, um, you know, what we called back then the projects. Um, And it was unfortunately not by choice sometimes, but a lot of times it was. You want to be around people who look like you, who understand your values and your traditions. And sometimes that's what we need when we're going through education. So Meharry Medical College um, is actually 147 years old. um, And it is an amazing institution that has trained uh, probably more black dentists (laughs) in this country than any other institution. Uh, They have a dental school, there's a medical school, and there's a graduate school. um, Also deals with public health. So I'm really excited to be part of Meharry. Um, I took this job about a year and a half ago. Um, I had previously been, as you mentioned, a radiation oncologist specializing in hematologic or blood cancers uh, and the treatment of breast cancer. Uh, I also happened to be the associate director of the Cancer Center in Winston-Salem as the Wake Forest Baptist uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center. It's an NCI-designated cancer center. My focus was on community outreach and engagement. Uh, There is an understanding that we do need to value communities, their differences, what they bring to the table, how we can engage and create bi-directional communication. And, and I love that. I love that work. But when you go out in the communities and you talk about cancer, that's not always their priority. That cancer isn't the number one priority 
believe it or not, <laughs> for a lot mm. of folks in this country, you know, mm. um, they may be dealing with uh, financial difficulties. Uh, they may be dealing with um, other medical issues, diabetes, hypertension. And so I, I really felt very much drawn to saying, how can I meet people where they are in a different way? And I'd been doing the engagement work, but this job came up as the executive director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance, which is wholly focused on equity with respect to health and well-being. And the way that I really think about health is different from what some other folks might. Health in this country has for too long been been defined as the absence of disease. And what we need to start thinking about health is really the is wholeness and wellness and well-being. It's the total social structure. And we've seen a little bit of that that during the pandemic, when you talk about the social determinants of health, and we can certainly talk about that later, but hmm. you know, it's really important to understand that it's not just the absence of disease, it's really about that social context and well-being. And so the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance has been working now for, for 20 years, for over 20 years, to try to bring the resources, the benefits, the, the expertise of two of the United States uh, premier institutions, Meharry Medical College, again, being one of four uh, historically black institutions that have a medical school attached to them, and Vanderbilt University Medical Center, how can we work together to engage communities around well-being, around health, and to understand, truly understand what the community needs are, pull them in to really think strategically together about how do we improve health equity in this country. That is such an, it's such an important work um, for collaboration, right, to, to reach communities. So, Dr. Winkfield, we've had podcast conversations with a number of physician scientists in the field of cancer care around disparities and inequities and how precision medicine could possibly close the gap. Um, and a lot of these a lot of these guests, you may know Dr. Wendy Dean Cologne, uh, Dr. Clayton Yates at Tuskegee University, even uh, our good friend Kashet Patel uh, mm -hmm. came on and talked about some great things. Your work goes far beyond genetic variations which we'll talk more about shortly, but just, you know, 30,000 foot view, what's the potential? What could be learned with greater participation of underrepresented groups in clinical trials or, or, or greater participation in the healthcare system for that matter? Yes. Now you're about to talk my language here. Um, <laughs> so uh, what, what we didn't talk about is the fact that in addition to me getting my medical degree from Duke. I also got my PhD from Duke. Remember, I was all about the basic science and trying to figure out the human disease and, yes. and issues related to human physiology. And one of the things that drew my attention when I was in medical school was the fact that black women died of breast cancer at a much greater rate than white women. Despite the fact that at the time they were diagnosed with it less, they had a lower incidence, you know, number of new cases each year, but they were dying of breast cancer. So I really want to say, hey, I want to look at this uh, conundrum from a biologic perspective, right? Are there things that are different in the genome of a black woman that creates for them a worse prognosis when they're diagnosed with breast cancer. So I was doing that by, by looking at samples of, of breast tumors. And we did this thing called a laser capture dissection, where we literally would, would take th very thin slices of the tumors from black women and from white women. And we would put them under a microscope and we would literally try to pick out the cells. Because remember, a tumor is comprised of both tumor cells and normal cells right? There is stroma or stuff or fat or you know, other components that comprise a tumor. But what we wanted to look at was the cells themselves, those cells that became dysregulated and see if there might be something genetic that is creating this worse um, outcome. What was unfortunate was that I couldn't complete that work because I couldn't get enough samples from black women. I didn't have enough tissue samples. We call those biospecimens, right? And this is one of the challenges when we don't have representation in clinical trials um, or biobanking. There may have indeed been a genetic marker that may have 
predicted that, oh, this group of individuals is going to have a worse prognosis. But, you know, I couldn't figure that out because there weren't enough specimens, right? Um, I moved then to a proteomic approach, meaning looking at the proteins. Because remember the genome, the DNA is essentially the blueprint that says, all right, how is this person's, what is this person's makeup? But it's really the proteins that actually create the phenotype. The proteins are what makes a cell move. It's what creates the color of our skin. It's what decides what the the hair texture is going to be like. It's actually those proteins that are coming out and doing the work. And so I wanted to look at the protein expression and thought maybe I could do more that way. And, and, you know, again, ran into very similar issues that I could not look at how a genome might vary um, or genome might vary because I couldn't do the genetic work, try to look at the proteins and the proteomes and seeing if that was different. But again, I wasn't able to do that work either because of lack of specimen. We may be missing some biologic factors that impact or influence equity because we don't have representation. We don't have representation in the, within the medical system and people utilizing the medical system uh, the way that they could um, for good reason. And we can certainly talk about that, lack of trust, et cetera. But certainly clinical trials and particularly cancer clinical trials, because we've made such amazing progress over time. Many of you, and you may actually know, Jerome, about the, the AACR's, you know, cancer disparities report that came out in 2020, and it showed that we've had a decline in terms of cancer more, um, mortality. Fantastic. Yes. Great. But there's still a gap. <laughs> Right, Black people are still dying of cancer at a much higher rate. And so what is causing that variance certainly might have some biologic uh, uh, reasons or things to look at. Maybe they don't process a particular um, uh, medicine the same way. But we don't know because there's been such underrepresentation in cancer clinical trials. And so this is an opportunity for us to rethink how we engage communities around inclusive participation. What are the things that we can do uh, from a researcher standpoint that says to communities, particularly those who have been disenfranchised and excluded for so long, that, hey, we value you. You're important to us. We want to make sure that you have the appropriate care, that the medicines, the things that we're coming up with are going to work just as well in you as they do in other populations, that those side effect profiles are going to are going to be something that's tolerable, but we need to kind of create that environment. We need to become trustworthy as researchers, as institutions, to tell people, say, hey, you can come and we'd love to, we'd love to learn with you about um, what's happening from a biologic standpoint. And we do that obviously through precision medicine, but as you mentioned, the way I describe precision medicine is very different. But certainly with all the new technologies, we can advance this field so, so very far as long as we have everyone participating. The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this. With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which treatments are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit TrapelloHealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based treatment options when time matters most. Okay, so you know I'm a big fan of your work, right? So I, I, I've been reading your work for at least a couple of years, and I finally got a chance to meet you in person at the Florida ASCO, at the yes. um, Florida ASCO's uh, Symposium for Cancer Disparities with Mm -hmm. Dr. Luis Reyes and the, the yeoman's work that he's doing down there. And when I when I saw you in person speaking on panels, you continue to present perspectives on this that I had not thought about. Right. So mm -hmm. you just said a lot. If we can kind of double click on that. Right. So. So Kashat Patel said something mm -hmm. and you just echoed it. So he said that precision medicine could actually present challenges 
for diverse populations that are unrepresented in the reference genome. Mm-hmm. And some of the data he quoted, um, he, he quoted a study from um, 2009, and this was in our the last podcast conversation, that 90% of the genome, uh, the reference genome are represented by European ancestry, but they're mm-hmm. only 9.7% of the global population. Um, Asians, people of Asian descent, 10% represented in the uh, around 10% of uh, representing the genome, but the African diaspora only around 2%. What are the consequences of a lack of biological diversity in the reference genome? <laughs> oh boy, you're trying to get me in trouble today. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is some- podcast episode two with Dr. Karen. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're about to get in some good trouble. That's all. Um, so let me let me back up a little bit. Um, most people are aware that the the Cancer Genome Atlas program has been around for a long time. Has sequenced over eleven thousand primary cancer samples, and we're just talking about the Cancer Genome Atlas pr- pr- program. Um, I think what Dr. Kasha Patel talks about is the the larger kind of program to to look at genomes, um, just at whole genome. Um, but let me tell you something, um, even within the cancer genome program, there's lack of diversity, right? And we had, um, what was it, a week or two ago, we had our um, symposium. So I, I helped to co-lead the Comprehensive Partnership to Advance Cancer Health Equity at uh, Meharry, uh, TSU, and Vanderbilt. This is what's called a CPACI or a U54 um, grant that's awarded from the National Cancer Institutes. There are several programs around the country. Meharry's and Vanderbilt's happen to be one of the oldest CPACI that's in the country. And so we have an annual symposium. And I invited my good friend, John Carpton, um, who you probably are very well aware of um, from USC. He was our keynote speaker. And one of the things that he pointed out was in looking at prostate cancer, and you look at the Cancer Genome Atlas program. Again, over 11,000 primary cancer samples. Only 25 of those specimens were from prostate cancers derived from black men. Mm. 25! Despite the fact that black men not only have a much greater risk of developing prostate cancer, probably twice as high as any other racial ethnic group, and they're two and a half times as likely to die of prostate cancer. Hmm. That's a major disparity. Yes. And yet you only have 25 specimens from black men? Like, what the heck? And so what was fascinating, it took another black man, Dr. Levi Garraway, who I knew when he was at Dana-Farber. Now he's doing other things. But what was interesting is that he, along with his colleagues, actually sequenced the genome of prostate cancer derived from black men, and in fact, found that there was a genetic abnormality that was more likely in black men than there was in other groups. This is what happens when you don't have inclusive participation. When you're only looking at a subset of individuals, you're only getting a small uh, window uh, or a glimpse into a small component of the entire population. And again, remember, it's it's not just about the genome. That's one component. The cancer genome is a whole other thing, right? Which is what I was just talking about, yes. the genome atlas. Yes. And then it's even about how those genes are expressed is a whole other thing. So my concern is that the way we're currently defining precision medicine is looking at, you know, how um, certain proteins or uh, what genes are, are being, uh, are upregulated or deep or downregulated in a cancer. Um, we're, we're missing a little bit about the expression um, when we do that. Um, sometimes when we do look at the, the ways that precision medicine uh, is essentially um, used to help with treatment decisions, where a person might go and get a gene panel their tumor, the piece of the tumor gets taken out, gets looked at. We're going to see if these particular genes are overexpressed or underexpressed. And if there's overexpression, we may be able to use an inhibitor, right? 
Uh, we have all of these precision medicines now that we're calling them, these targeted agents. Um, and so we're trying to utilize this, this information to help with treatment decisions. But what happens when not everyone has access to those, those panels, right? When not everyone has access to the genetic testing that's required to make those sorts of treatment decisions. That's the problem that I have. And I think that's what Kasia Patel is talking about too, right? If we don't have enough diversity within not only the reference genome so that we can say, okay, well, this particular variant that we're seeing on this gene panel, it's actually a very, that's that's what we see in X population. We always see an upregulation of that gene in this population. So that's not necessarily a tumor, tumor marker, right? But we don't know that because we don't have enough diversity in the reference sample. And I use the example of, uh, of, um, of renal function, kin- kidney function. You know, for the longest time, we've looked at the glomerular filtration rate, GFR. Um, and there's been always, if you look, if you've ever gotten your lab panel done, there's always a disclaimer and says, oh, this, this EGFR, this GFR is only relevant. If you're black, then it's going to be a little bit different, right? <laughs> all of our labs, white blood cells, red blood cells, all the reference labs that we have in medicine were based off of white men and young white men. So it's really hard when you have a black person who their white blood cell count might be slightly lower and says, somebody says, God, you've got low white blood cells. Well, that's what happens in black people. Their white blood cell count tends to be lower. Cortisol levels tend to be higher. Their glomerular filtration rate tends to be different. And so we can miss things in medicine if we don't have diversity in just the basics and the basic understanding of medicine and how people's bodies different, that can actually allow us to um, miss things. It could create larger gaps. And and certainly with respect to precision medicine, the way that most people look at it, I do think that there's a concern that if we do not um, address some of the inequities in terms of access to care, that many of the disparities that we have seen, you know, we've seen improvements over time. But the fear is that precision medicine is going to make those disparities even worse over the next couple of years. Man. Oh. Yeah. <sighs> I had to take a deep breath on that one. You know, we, uh, we, we many times talk to our guests about the promise, the hope, the advancements. But, um, you know, a lot of times we don't get that 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 other perspective mm. of um, unintended consequences mm-hmm. that can occur mm-hmm. because of that. Wow. So sorry. Or how much to... longer or how much longer the road is. We feel like we've made such great progress, right? And that we're mm-hmm. that with technology and things are happening faster, that healthcare is going to improve faster. But that was a mm-hmm. really good reality check of how far we have to go. Yeah. Well, speaking of more reality checks. Okay. So, so, so Dr. Wingfield, I've attended conferences where healthcare disparities have been discussed and, you know, over the last several years, right. And the same issues tend to be brought forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Lack of access, um, being underinsured, uh, generational mistrust of Mm -hmm. the healthcare system. We can harken back to the Tuskegee experiment that lasted for 40 years. Um, Henrietta Lacks, um, there are a number of others, but your work digs into the root causes of healthcare disparities, right? So the question is always asked in these conferences, well, what do we do? What do we do? It's not just about lack of access. It's just not about, um, you know, getting people insurance. One of the papers that I read a couple of years ago was published in JCO Oncology Practice. Uh, you were the lead author on this paper. It was titled The Development of an Actionable Framework to Address Cancer Care Disparities in Medically Underserved Populations in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually lay out a plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, you actually step by step lay out a plan. Um, can you talk about these causative factors that for many people are hidden in plain sight. Yes. Yes, I can. Um, let me, let me just say this. I I do think that, you know, okay, I laid out a plan, but you know, there's been a plan out for ending cancer disparities for over 20 years. Mm. The, The unequal burden document that was essentially kind of written, um, by the institutes of medicine, um, Congress actually was the one who said, hey, we need to kind of understand what's going on with this cancer disparities thing. And the whole plan was outlined, you know, 
part of what the challenge is now is do we have the will? Do we have yes. the will mm-hmm. to do what is needed? And and yes, I mean, there are those of us who've been kind of yelling from the mountaintops for for decades now that we need to do something different because people are dying. The, the structural barriers, it's those social determinants of health. It's the structural barriers that have been built into the system that really can be part of the challenge. And so some folks say, well, look, the disparities that we see related to race and ethnicity are so humongous that we're not even going to tackle that, right? So what they do instead is they start talking about geography. And look, that's important, right? Rural America, we know that there are issues related to access to care. And so we have things that we need to do there. But when it comes particularly to black-white disparities, because I think there's been focus on language as a barrier. And people, again, want to go to something that's a little bit easier. Okay, well, we'll make sure that we have, you know, uh, bilingual individuals who are um, providing some resources in the community related to health and, and access, et cetera. But to your point, you mentioned insurance. I always used to say, because I was in Boston, remember, I practiced medicine in Boston for years. And I used to tell folks, we had Romney care before there was Obamacare, we had universal health care coverage for the state of Massachusetts. We had uninsured rates less than 4%. I would tell people, having an insurance card does not mean that you have access to health care. And it goes back to how I define precision medicine. Yes, we can look at all the MIBs and MABs and, and all these targeted agents, and, and that's all great. And it has revolutionized the way that we treat cancer. But people often talk about precision medicine as, as giving the right patient the right treatment at the right time. And I like to turn that on its head just a little bit and say, can we make sure that every patient gets the right treatment at the right time? And that means we have to see the person who's sitting in front of us, find out what their social context is, find out are there barriers just for them walking through the door. And for many, Hmm. it's not rocket science. It's that built environment. Maybe they have to, if they're living in an urban environment, have to take two buses and a train to get to a, a hospital appointment or appointment with their oncologist. Can you imagine having to come in for chemotherapy and have to ride a train? Like, what the heck? These are barriers that many of us take for granted. Like, I have a car. I can drive. You know, yeah, okay, I hate picking, par- paying for parking. That's another barrier, though, right? Yes. But these are the things, those social determinants of health. If we can stop and just see the person in front of us and say, what is it that you need to help you along your cancer journey? That, to me, is being precise. That's being involved in personalizing medicine. And that's what that actionable framework was. So you're absolutely right. We published that paper, my colleagues and I, and this was a collaborative paper. If you look at the list of the people who were, who were on there, we had pharma at the table. <laughs> you know, This was not just the musings of an academician. These are in- individual stakeholders who we said, what is it that we need to do to really sure up the gaps in healthcare? Because again, the way that I look at things, if we really want to do medicine the right way, we need to scrap the whole dang system, start over. Yeah. Look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a provider. I'm a cancer. I'm an oncologist. And you know what I get paid to do? I get paid to treat cancer. Do I get paid to talk about prevention? No. Do I get paid to talk about secondary prevention? No. In our country, physicians get paid to treat diseases. Preventing Preventive care is not prioritized. So that's a problem in and of itself, right? When we have two of the greatest modifiable risk factors for cancer, tobacco use and obesity, both running rampant in the black community, but there's no incentive to help reduce those risk factors. None. Mm-hmm. That's a problem, right? So again, are we personalizing? Are we being precise in the way that we deliver our, our our medicines? And we saw a lot of this during the pandemic, right? I think people's eyes were open to the social context. One of the things that uh, Dr. Rob Wynn and I, I know you probably know Dr. Rob Wynn as well. Uh, he is the um, director of the Cancer Center at VCU Massey in Richmond. 
amazing, amazing clinician. He's a pulmonologist, um, but he also happens to be a basic scientist. And like he's like the triple threat for real, y'all. Really amazing guy. He and I were on a panel together at one of these conferences, one of the same ones, Jerome, like you're talking about. I'm always on these panels. And we were asked to write a paper about it. And we did. Um, and it was about how do you improve equity during in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a health cri- crisis. That's what really the title was. And you know what we spent the majority of that document doing is outlining the structural roots of why we see the disparities we see in this country. Because it goes beyond just about health care access, right? This is about health. Remember I said my definition for health is around well-being, social context. There has been redlining in this country. There's been urban development in this country that has systematically disenfranchised communities on purpose. And many of those things are still in place or the vestiges of them are. And so we have to recognize that structural barriers, and I'm going to say the word structural racism, still exists. And until we are willing in this country to say, okay, racism is a thing. It's a system. It's not about racist individuals. It's a system. Mm -hmm that we can still see it and that what do we need to do? We need to actually acknowledge and we need to say, okay, we need to move beyond this because frankly, many of those things, redlining, urban development, et cetera, et cetera, disenfranchised communities such that they do, did not have the ability to build wealth. And in this country, in the United States, your wealth directly impacts your health. Your zip code impacts your outcome more than your genetic code. That's a fact. Yeah. You know, it's problematic that um, there are some people that simply don't believe that racism exists, let alone institutional racism. But um, here's some other things that you talk about in this particular paper that I mentioned. You guys can go search it up uh, on ASCO pubs, if um, among other places. But just the lack of transportation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about structural issues, uh, living in food deserts, mm-hmm. the ethnic underrepresentation of clinical staff, um, having community navigators, access to biomarker testing. It's just a good paper. I mean, obviously, we're not going to do it justice here on the podcast. You can do a symposium, a day symposium, just on the, the topics that you talked <laughs> talked about in the paper. But uh, one of the other things that we like to talk about here on the podcast, our title sponsor is Trapello Health, which is a, uh, a technology company. You know, the, the pandemic exposed some inequities in the healthcare system, and we see the opportunity to bridge that knowledge and communication gap, in particular, for precision medicine through technology. Mm-hmm. But what kind of impact do you see technology will have on eliminating healthcare disparities? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and you know, I, I'm all about humans because, again, if you, you mentioned the paper and one of my top kind of recommendations in that paper is about navigation, right? The importance of it, the value of it. Harold Freeman was able to take uh, the overall survival of, of black women in Harlem uh, from a 30% overall survival rate at five years to a 70% overall survival rate. Within five years, he was able to make that transition simply yes. by having people, lay individuals who are trained around the importance of what breast cancer is, breast cancer screening, and navigating people through the system. And you mentioned transportation, number one barrier for, for healthcare uh, in the country. So, yeah, there are some structural barriers, and navigation can help individuals. And again, it doesn't have to be nurse navigation. It could be lay navigation, but they have to be trained. It could be community health workers. It could be lay health advisors, people who have trained in the skill of helping people understand a diagnosis, understand their health and well-being. Great. I just want to put that out there. I am in a field. I'm a radiation oncologist. I use a linear accelerator to treat patients, right? I am all about technology. And the pandemic has indeed opened people's eyes to like, oh my goodness, we can do telemedicine and people are actually happy. Patients are happy with it. You know, but there are still barriers with respect to te- telehealth, right? Uh, not everyone has access to broadband. Not everybody's cell phone. Even if it is a smartphone, they have enough, you know, 
um, enough minutes to kind of talk with their dog. There, there are certainly barriers, so it's not an end-all be-all. But I must say that we are now living in the age where we have artificial intelligence, where what we can start to do is take all of the data. We are bombarded with data all the time. Whether it be data from a human genome project or whether it be data from, you know, the smartwatch on somebody's wrist, there is data that is there. And, you know, some companies have really utilized it really well. (laughs) Speaking of tobacco, tobacco companies understand data and how to use it. Why can't we take that same technology, the artificial intelligence, and apply it to saying, how can we improve people's lives? How can we improve their well-being? And I think we we can, and I think we are. There have been lots of amazing opportunities recently uh, with uh, grants uh, that have come out from the government, uh, from the National Institutes of Health, that have really been looking at how can we utilize artificial intelligence? How can we utilize all these data points to really start to rethink healthcare and well-being in this country? And so I do think that technology is important. We've seen how it's revolutionized uh, revolutionized cancer care, right? We, we talk about all the targeted agents now, even simple thing, quote unquote simple, looking at Oncotype DX, which is a 21 gene panel that has really been able to allow us to differentiate between women with breast cancer who need chemotherapy to improve their outcomes versus those who don't. Because remember, all the treatments, if we're treating somebody for a disease, there are side effects that can come from our treatments, right? So what we were able to do with that test is really to predict which women would really benefit the most from having chemotherapy as part of their treatment course. And we are doing this more and more by looking at, are there specific markers that are elevated in tumors? And that's the beauty of technology and precision medicine. And it's great. It's wonderful. And I do not want people to think that when I talk about these things and the barriers that it's like, oh, well, she's um, anti-technology. No, I love it. (laughs) That's what I do. But I think we also need to kind of take a step back and say, how do we make sure that everyone has access to this today? to that technology. And, and that's where I'm, I'm coming at. And I'm, I'm excited for the future because remember, you know, the moonshot uh, 2.0 that uh, Biden announced on February 2nd. And I was very honored to be at the White House when he made that, that declaration, that moonshot 2.0 is on the way. And he charged us with working together collaboratively, everyone together to say, how do we kind of change the face of cancer as we know it, talked about technology, talked about health disparities, talked about precision medicine, talked about all of those things. And look, it's coming down the pike. We are going to revolutionize the way that cancer looks. But again, I just want to keep people's mindset on the fact that we need to make sure that as these technologies are coming up and growing and developing, that we are aware and are mindful of the fact that that not everyone has had access and how do we ensure inclusive participation as things move forward? So you mentioned it. We can't just step on that and keep going. All right. So we got to double back. So yes. So to our listeners, Dr. Wingfield was appointed to president Joe Biden's national cancer advisory board. Mm. So I'm always amazed again at the journey but we just, we have incredible guests that are doing incredible things. Can you share with our audience kind of the vision of the consortium and, and what are some of the objectives that you're focused on? Yeah, well, I'm I'm brand new to this. I mean, I've I've only been appointed for a couple of months, and we're still uh, kind of focused on this endemic and COVID precautions. And so, my engagement to date has really been uh, virtual, except for the invitation to the White House on the second of February. But remember, the National Cancer Advisory Board was actually formed by Congress years ago, um, and it's around trying to elevate the work that the National Cancer Institutes is doing, all right? So there are um, 18 of us total, and our job, we are researchers and scientists and providers and patient advocates from around the country who are focused on providing input to the director of the National Cancer Institutes. Um, It had been Ned Sharpless. He just stepped down. We have an interim director now, Doug Lowey. And really, it's all about focused on how do we do this cancer stuff better? (laughs) How does the National Cancer Institutes help to improve research around cancer, improve access around cancer? Now, the thing is, is that, you know, access is different, right? 
but it's all those things, you know, I will certainly bring my voice to the table about ensuring that we have inclusive participation in the research. But it is really highly focused on thinking about the ways that the National Cancer Institutes can really help to improve the way that we do research around cancer, to help provide input into the funding related to uh, to cancer uh, research, and to really provide some some thoughts around ways that we can work again collaboratively together uh, to do this work. And so I'm really excited that uh, I can bring this community engagement lens to this work. Um, there are others who do that as well. And this is, again, my friend John Carpton. I'm excited because he's actually the chair of, of this uh, very um, robust and an august group of individuals that I am so grateful to be a part of. Wow. Dr. Karen Winkfield, Executive Director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance, co-host of the Three Black Docs podcast. So I just want to, you know, this has been such an interesting um, podcast, and I want to recognize that the reason why we got so much time with Dr. Wingfield today is because she's on vacation and, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take that extra time to do the work that needs to be done here. And so what I, what I wanted to dig into here a little bit is, is the beauty of technology as it relates to podcasts. And, you know, as podcasts have gotten more and more popular through the pandemic, it is such an incredible way for people to come together, learn, participate, move these difficult conversations forward outside of their work time. So I really appreciate Jerome and I both the fact that we could get you on here, that you really dug into some hard and you know real reality checks out there. And that's what it's going to take. Um, but I think it's so great also, uh, Dr. Wingfield, that you have got your own podcast called Three Black Docs uh, with two of your colleagues. And what I love about it is that you're talking about wellness and health and all of those things, but that you bring in, you bring in an entertainment component to it. And um, so I love your episode in December. I think you guys were just kind of giving yourselves a break because you record every Sunday. Did I get that right? Yeah, we, we try to. We, so we, yeah, we've been, try. yeah, we, we try. <laughs> so you had a whole episode where you guys were talking about the show Sun Selling Sunset, which is a reality show. Um, <laughs> my daughter happens to watch it, so I know enough to be dangerous. Um, so I was curious. I've got one question about that show, which is, is you know, now someone's got to really go and watch it just to know what we're talking about. But how do you feel about Christine? Ah! <laughs> Because that is about wow. as far away from what we've been talking about here. But I love yes, that you guys have been yes, able to bring in that other culture because what we do is hard. But, you know, the reality is we need those shows that, like, take us away from everything and just make us laugh, right? Yes, absolutely. That is so hysterical. Yes. You know, and it's funny. This we've had a very t this has been a very difficult conversation. I'm grateful for you, Jerome and Karen, for to just allow us to have an, an, a chance to talk about these, these difficult things. Uh, again, the things that people tend to shy away from. And I tell you, Christine is one I would shy away from her in a heartbeat. She <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I'm going to stay far away from her as I can. But let me tell you, it's been very um, entertaining to watch that whole uh, series. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to do one one other kind of selfless plug for podcasts here, which, which it hits on what you were talking about, which is navigating care, which is so difficult. Uh, one of our... Um, two-time former guest, Hannah Mamushka, and her colleague, Lena Chihorsky, are beginning a new path and helping them start a new podcast, which is all about helping people navigate their care. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to take people like that, you, all of us that are willing to put in extra time um, for our sponsor, Trapello, to say, yes, we believe in this, go do it. Um, that's what it's going to take. So really appreciate you being with us today. But I have one more question. Are you still singing? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Actually, no, I, I haven't sung in a long time. I was honored a couple of years ago to, to sing the national anthem at uh, Fenway Park. It was oh, part of the, awesome. yeah, it was part of my advocacy work with Komen, actually. I, I used to work with the Massachusetts branch of Komen. It's now the New England uh, uh, 
branch and they were asked to do the opening ceremonies. It was on Mother's Day and it was Survivor's Day. And I was incredibly honored to be able to sing the national anthem and God Bless America uh, wow. at Fenway Park. And I think that was probably the last bit of singing that I did. Um, <laughs> I used to sing in a, in a church choir, but, you know, the pandemic has changed a lot. So, uh, mm. yeah, it's it's been um, a journey. But, you know, I think that's the beauty of kind of making sure that, you know, look, nothing is set in stone. And I tell a lot of my mentees, you might have a vision for yourself and you may say, this is the path that I want to go in. But don't hesitate to maybe peek into some of those windows that get open or those doors because you never know. And I think sometimes when we become so focused and we have those blinders on that we really don't take time to look around and say, where else can I be going? What are some other opportunities that might be there for me? And I must say, I'm so grateful for the detours in my life. I'm very grateful for the fact that I'm not, I'm a very non-traditional student because that has certainly informed the way that I approach every single thing that I do. Incredible work. Incredible work. Uh, Dr. Wingfield, if someone wants to get in touch with you via social media, Twitter, um, do you have any handles that they can reach out to you? Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's at D-R-W-I-N-K-F-I-E-L-D. So at Dr. Wingfield on um, Insta, on uh, Facebook, um, on Twitter. And um, certainly our podcast, Three Black Docs, is it's a number three and then Black Docs, D-O-C-S. Um, and we have a website. You can find us there and comment there as well. Yeah. And you can see a number of the interviews of the work that she does on her website, drkarenwinkfield.com. We cannot thank you enough for the amazing content and just sharing yourself with us this morning Hmm. while on vacation. Come on, somebody. Uh, (laughs) So, Dr. Wingfield, thank you so much for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode.